This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. subsidiary. Of the BBC. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One of the classic places that I went to, which was extraordinary and was a real honor to go to, was a volcano called Nerta Ali, which is a lava lake. It's only three, four lava lakes in the world. You'd have to travel for several days to get there across this Ethiopian wilderness, one of the most desolate places in the world. It's a, a pond, a surface pond of bubbling lava. And you can see the fumes coming out and it catches your breath, so you, you sense it before you actually see it. And I would just sit there and transfix, really, watching this surface of congealing, then breaking lava, moving around, bursting off, you know, frothing a little bit. And you kind of realise that's exactly the same as your planet. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast, the podcast that's getting a bigger picture about life on our planet. I'm Emily Knight. It was almost like I had stripped off the crust the surface crust of the planet, the one that we're all so used to with the cities and continents on, and had kind of revealed this inner workings of the planet. Um, so it was, it definitely was one of those moments of real revelation. In this episode, we're telling stories of unity, of times we humans come together to help the natural world, and of animals who work together in ways you may not expect. It's definitely a perspective thing. When you start to understand the planet as a, a living organism kind of moving, that it gets really exciting. But our first story is from this man. So I'm Ian Stewart. He's a geologist. I'm professor of geoscience communication at the University of Plymouth. Most of us think of our planet as a motley collection of radically different landscapes, habitats divided by mountain ranges and separated by oceans. But this story is a geology story. A story which takes place in deep geological time. A time when our seven continents were one huge united landmass. People, even in the 17th century, started noticing the apparent fit between South America and Africa, that you could kind of put those two together and they seemed to fit quite snugly. It really takes geological form when geologists started to notice that the rocks in distant lands were actually very similar and also that the fossils that they were finding in, say, southern Africa were very similar to those in India or in South America. So that got people thinking. One of the classic fossils is a, it's a plant, Glossopteris. It's a kind of a fern leaf. And that had been found in India, been found in South America, etc. And the interesting character there is Mary Stopes, which is the person who then becomes a pioneer of women's rights and family planning. But in her early life, she was a paleobotanist. And she'd picked up on this. And she tried to convince Robert Scott to take her to Antarctica because she thought, actually, you know what? If this Glossopteris is found in India and South America, it's got to be there in Antarctica. 
And Scott just said, look, I'm not taking you, it's too dangerous. But he said, look, I'll get some samples. And then that ill-fated mission that Scott, one of the reasons he took so long was because they geologized, they collected rock samples. They hauled, I can't remember, 80 kilograms, I think it was, of rock with them. And when Scott died and his encampment was found, all these rocks were beautifully laid out and labeled where they'd come from. And they contained Glossopteris, the first absolute evidence that plant and forests had once covered Antarctica. A new idea slowly emerged, an idea we take for granted now, but that must have seemed extraordinary at the time. That the land on Earth, the continents and countries, huge and eternal, must be on the move. It wasn't until the mid-20th century that the science of plate tectonics was fully understood. Tectonic plates are the movements of the outer rigid shell of our planet. So you imagine the planet being broken almost like an eggshell and these things are, are jostling and, and moving around. And the continents really are the passengers on that. The, the big driving actions actually take place hidden away in the oceans. Around the edges, you get big earthquakes and volcanic eruptions, so you see a lot of geological drama. But in actual fact, most of the motion is absolutely imperceptible. And the classic analogy is the rate your fingernails grow. But that's our model for the way the planet works. A planet, an outer edge, constantly in motion. It's kind of like when you boil a big pot of, of thick soup and you see on the top that's kind of scum moving around. Well, we're the planetary scum, really. You can look at, you know, the southern part of Australia, the southern bite, you know, that rounded, concave southern edge to Australia. Um, the northern part of Antarctica fits into that beautifully. And there's an amazing place you can go in southern Australia where you can stand on the edge and you can see the southern right whale, which are these whales that really live in the Antarctic Ocean. And you can just stand on the cliffs and watch these whales with their calves. And it is extraordinary to think that if you bent back 50 million years, that if I step off there, I would step off of Australia and essentially step onto Antarctica. Australia moves northwards into ever drier climes and Antarctica gets dispatched south to languish around the South Pole. And now we think of them as two completely different worlds and yet geologically they're identical. Pangaea, all Earth, is the notion that between 250 and 200 million years ago, all of the disparate land masses that we have today were congealed together in one supercontinent. There's a kind of natural cyclicity in the planet to bring all of its continents together and then the heat escaping breaks it up and sends them all away again. And then that convection brings them all back and sends them away. So these cycles tend to happen every 500 million years. So there's been several supercontinents going back into time. Beautiful names, Rodinia, Columbia and Ur, and they're fantastic names. But Pangaea is the most recent. Before Pangaea came Panosha. Then Rodinia. Before that, there was Columbia, Kenoland, and the earliest supercontinent we have evidence for three and a half billion years ago was Ur. Ur, you are Ur. And, and it's this guttural kind of utterance. And really, what we know about Ur is hardly anything, you know. If you go back beyond 500, 600 million years ago, you've not got complex life and fossils. So you're really relying on kind of ancient rafts of rock that we try to piece together. So it is the most amazing uh, detective work. You get, have to get cleverer and more imaginative about trying to interpret the rocks that are under your feet. It may be the rocks under your feet that are moving, but of course, it isn't just the rocks which are affected. There's a kind of dance between tectonics and climate that goes on in the background. 
you know, if you start throwing up a mountain belt, you might do it over millions of years, but almost certainly as you do that, you change the atmospheric circulation system. So winds that would have blown suddenly move somewhere else. And climate has a really strong effect on how life evolves. We call it geodiversity. The reason you get biodiversity is because of geodiversity. The rocks underneath the, the soils, etc., are what gives rise to this fantastic kind of uh, panoply of life. We're coming back together. It's all harmony and unity, but we're going to have to wait 200 million years. It's what it'll take. Now, so, for example, Africa's moving northwards still, colliding into Italy, the Mediterranean, will close completely. The fastest moving continent on the planet is Australia, which is already starting to collide into the eastern edges of Indonesia. The Atlantic will start to close. We think that the Americas will come back to Europe. And that in time, if we could live another couple of hundred million years, we would see them all start to move back again into a future Earth where there'd be a future a supercontinent again. The realization of just what an incredibly special world we have. We have a planet that's 4.5, 4,567 million years old, and we have tantalizing evidence of different parts through that process. And as we come more up to date, our record is better and better and better. It's easy to think of our planet as being essentially a divided place. Divided into separate continents, separate countries, or separate animal ranges. But if you zoom out, it's possible to see the whole world as one single unified habitat. Nothing demonstrates this better than the animals which travel from one end of it to the other, disregarding borders. Animals of the air and of the sea, whose migration patterns draw circles right round the planet. Humpback whales travel between Costa Rica and Antarctica. A great white shark was tagged on a journey from South Africa to Australia and back. But not all creatures who complete these epic journeys are ocean giants. Some are tiny. You know, if someone tells you the story of the, the eel's migration in a pub, you just wouldn't believe it. You know, you'd think they've had a few too many drinks. But it's, it's real, it really happens. My name is Michael Millay. I'm an English teacher at the University of Bristol. I teach contemporary literature and environmental poetry. Eels have an extraordinary uh, migration story. They are born in the Sargasso Sea in the North Atlantic Ocean. They hatch as eggs rising from depths, um, but depths that nobody has ever measured because no one has ever seen and emerging from the eggs are leptocephaly. They're about the size of a grain of rice. And if you looked really closely, they resemble a miniature willow leaf. And these leptocephaly float on the ocean currents for thousands upon thousands of miles. And they're carried by the Gulf Stream and the North Atlantic Drift. You know, it's a pretty astonishing thing when you think about it, these tiny creatures um, the size of, you know, little grains of rice moving across these vast expanses of, of open ocean, vulnerable to a thousand things that could go wrong. So millions of eels must perish as they, as they try to make it from the Sargasso to Europe. So the leptocephaly will float on the currents and they'll be borne along by the currents towards uh, the shores of Europe. And when they 
reach the coasts of Europe, they undergo one of many amazing metamorphoses. It becomes what's known as a glass eel. So it loses the kind of roundness of the willow shape and it becomes longer and thinner and it assumes the form that we commonly think of when we think of eels. So it takes that snake-like sinuous shape. It's still transparent at this stage. So you could look at a glass eel and see its internal organs. And the glass eel will move towards the estuaries and get its first taste of fresh water. It hunkers down at the bottom of the estuary and sits there for a period of days, up to a couple of weeks, as its body undergoes a series of physical transformations that allow it to live and thrive in fresh water. And at this point, the glass eel becomes what's known as an elver. And if you look at an elver, you can see that it has the beginnings of pigmentation. It's like um, black ink that's been etched onto the length of the body. And the elvers, they do this astonishing thing. They generally move under the cover of darkness. And in tidal rivers, they will wait for the spring tide when there's a full moon or a new moon. And they'll ride the tide upriver. They'll surge up on the back of the tide so that they can make their way upriver. People call elvers the original surfers because they use the tide as a form of transport. In times past, astonished observers would record how they saw these columns of elvers making their way upriver in such numbers that they would darken the water by a few tones. The elver will then live in the rivers for sometimes five years, sometimes 15 years, 20 years, in extreme cases, up to 50 years. And it will become what's known as a, a yellow eel. So it loses its translucency and it becomes this kind of um, brackish, brown, yellowish, sometimes green eel. The final metamorphosis it undertakes is when it becomes what's known as a silver eel. It becomes much bigger at this stage, its flesh becomes much firmer, um, its pectoral fins become much more defined. One thing that really fascinates me is when the silver eel prepares to return to the Sargasso, its eyes widen, its retinal area increases fourfold, and this is really an adaptation so that it can see in the dark, in the depths of the ocean. And there's something quite moving about that cycle because it comes from the Sargasso kind of blind, helpless, vulnerable, drifting along the currents. And then it comes back with these large eyes, you know, seeing in the dark and in the depths of the ocean. It readies itself for returning to the Sargasso Sea, retracing the steps it took as a infant leptocephaly all those years ago. It usually waits for a dark autumn night when the moon is its in, in its last quarter and after the rain has fallen to swell the river. So it likes darkness and it likes a, a heavy, heavy water. And then on, on these nights it'll migrate en masse to the ocean and then go back to the Sargasso. Um, and then it might take as little as 80 days, some people think, 
it might take longer, uh, up to two years, to get back to uh, the Sargasso, where it then spawns, more eggs then rise to the surface, and then the whole process will begin again. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where this week we're telling stories of unity in our distant and divided world. When I was little, I had a pretty uncomplicated idea of how the natural world worked. Everything had a place. Predators and prey, the hunters and the hunted, united together in a kind of exquisite balance. And apparently, I wasn't the first to think this. It's said that the oldest idea recognizably scientific idea in the Western world is this idea of the circle of life, where all species depend on all species. You read the work of Linnaeus in the 1700s, you know. Linnaeus's view was that the purpose of plants is to feed animals, and the purpose of animals is to die and fertilize the soil so that plants can grow. We're very far from that view now. Okay, so animals might not be working together for some great and glorious purpose, but there are some intriguing examples of animals and plants seeming to help each other. It's a very specific kind of interaction called a mutualism. And Judy Bronstein is an expert. My name is Judy Bronstein. I'm a professor at University of Arizona. And ever since I was a graduate student, I've been studying mutualism or cooperation between species. Oh, probably the most common that everybody knows is pollination. So insects, some birds, go to flowers because there's nectar there. The plant is taking advantage of the animal's feeding behavior to deposit some pollen on the body of that animal. So it benefits both. The plant gets pollen moved and makes more seeds. The animal gets food. So that's one that you can see in your garden and is really fun to watch. There's a lot of examples of co-hunting. There are certain species of birds that you very consistently find feeding together in trees. And the idea is that the different birds have different ways of looking out for predators. So some birds may have very good long-distance vision, I don't know, and other birds be very good at hearing calls of predators so that when they come together... Each species is better protected because it's with another species. 
Darwin was really fascinated by cooperation, but there's no doubt that it conflicted with this early idea of strife and, and antagonism and competition. You know, nature red in tooth and claw, you know, that's the famous line about the struggle for existence. In fact, there's a famous quote from Origin of Species that captures Darwin's realization about this. He said, if it could be shown that any organism behaved in a way that strictly benefited another species and not itself, it would annihilate my theory. What people came to realize, including Darwin, is that there's no real discrepancy between viewing behavior as inherently selfish and seeing cooperative behavior. Because when we see cooperation in nature, what we're seeing is an organism that is cooperating with another in order to benefit itself. But mutualisms can develop in more unexpected ways too. In the forests of southeastern Peru, in small holes dug into the soft earth, there lives a spider called the Colombian lesserback tarantula. It looks like you'd expect a tarantula to look huge and hairy with pink and black tiger stripes on its back. They eat large insects, small mammals and frogs. But peer into the darkness of a lesserback's lair and you might see another set of eyes staring back at you. The eyes of a tiny brown frog. The dotted humming frog is one-third the size of the tarantula, easily small enough to be snacked on. Yet there they are, living together, a very unlikely set of roommates. The frog gets protection by living in the spider's den. None of its normal predators will come near. And the spider gets help from the frog too, who eats ants, too small for the spider to see, that come into the den to eat its eggs. It's a quid pro quo. Everyone wins. That's a... I could say a class of interaction, a class of mutualisms, a predator-prey interaction. I find them incredibly cool. Every single one is incredibly cool. The smaller organism is conferring some benefit to the larger one, and the larger one has learned to leave the smaller one alone. The idea is that the benefit that that species is giving you is bigger than what you could get by just eating it. So if you think about a crocodile bird jumping into the mouth of a crocodile to pick out parasites, the benefit it's going to get is the food that's in the crocodile's mouth. The risk, of course, is that it's going to get eaten. Everything is a trade-off and a cost-benefit relationship. You change the setting in which the interaction occurs just a tiny bit, and all of a sudden the costs are bigger than the benefits. In an environment where the crocodiles have terrible problems with parasites, cleaning is hugely beneficial to them, and they're going to tolerate those birds. When there's not a whole lot of parasites around, well, the benefit of being cleaned is really low compared to what you could get by just eating the bird, right? So wherever you see cooperation, you also find cheating. You find defection from cooperation. Individuals stop cooperating, when it stops being in their interests. So for the frog and the tarantula, all it might take is a few lean days before no more spider-frog friendship. We romanticize cooperation, right? We think of ourselves as highly cooperative organisms. And so we're really drawn to looking at cooperation in nature. 
If you go back to the ancient Greeks, and they were writing about crocodile birds jumping into the mouths of the crocodile, and so these were held up as friendships in nature. It's like humans should act the way the crocodile and the crocodile bird act. When one studies these interactions scientifically, you realize that that's a real trap, that these organisms are not trying to help each other. Over time, these traits have evolved. And that makes ecology a really interesting challenge, to take all these snapshots and then to turn them into a deeper understanding of these phenomena. And that gets really exciting. National borders, those lines that bring some of us together and keep others apart, are drawn across our maps by the forces of politics and war. The natural world makes its own borders, shaped by the movement of wind and water, rarely respecting our human understanding of who owns what. Our next story is about what happens when a group of countries, with different languages, politics and cultures, come together to tackle a problem that spills across their borders. The Sahel region spans the southern edge of the Sahara Desert, from Senegal in the west to Eritrea in the east. This wide stripe through the middle of the African continent was once lush and green, supporting huge populations of both humans and animals. But thanks to a combination of climate change, population growth and unsustainable farming, it's now hot and dry. Elvis Paul Tangel spoke to us from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. He's the African Union Commissioner for the Sahara and Sahel Great Green Wall Initiative. The, the challenging part of the job is not about the, the, the job itself, it's the perception of issues. Imagine when you sit down and you hear about people t- saying climate change does not exist. When people are playing politics with climate change, it becomes really disheartening for those of us that are the front line. Land that was once fertile has turned dusty and barren. For communities living on the lake's edge, the effects are devastating. Fertile land is turning to desert. Droughts and dust storms are now commonplace. The Sahara is advancing south. For this such an epic challenge to be solved, you need epic projects. How do you get all of these people to develop one vision, work together for a common good. And so the Great Green Wall emerged. The idea was literally a corridor of trees planted across the width of Africa. Its aim, to stop the Sahara in its tracks and prevent land from further degrading into desert. It was a true pan-African experiment. Nigeria, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Djibouti, Somalia. Countries with different languages, different forms of governance and different priorities would ignore their borders for a common goal. Namibia, Botswana, Lesotho, Mali, Eswatini, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Ghana, Seychelles, Madagascar, Nigeria, Egypt, Cameroon, Morocco, Tunisia and Libya. The whole idea was unity in vision, to unite all the small visions and make it work. When you hear Great Green Wall, you may be picturing a beautiful corridor of trees planted right across the width of Africa. And this is how the project began a decade ago. 
but it's evolved into something much bigger. It's a bit of everything that we do in this uh, dry lands of Africa to ensure that these people do not have to migrate, these people do not have to fight among themselves because of natural resources, to provide alternatives. Now it encompasses not only planting trees, but complete reforestation, rainfall harvesting, water management systems, and an economy that favours reuse over waste. You know, the Great Green Wall is more than just a project. It's now, it's like a movement. You get the freshness of the grass. You get children playing, children are back to school. In the evening, you get the hoofs of animals coming back home from their grazing areas. You get the fresh air. These are areas that used to be completely dust because they suffered a lot from dust storm and from sandstorm. They have a market that is functional. You see, the schools and hospitals that used to be closed nine months of the year are back. You, you can smell life. You don't smell misery. The main theme of this Good Green Wall is about unity in vision, unity to fight a common enemy together, which we cannot fight alone. People have realized that cutting down one tree is a big problem. And so the relationship between these people and their trees have completely changed. These are the real impacts that we are talking about. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. Stories were produced by Emily Knight, that's me, and Eliza Lomas. Subscribe and next week we'll be travelling from desert to tundra, from the deep ocean to the deepest jungle, in pursuit of the most extraordinary landscapes on Earth. For more animals, nature and science from BBC Earth, sign up to our newsletter at bbcearth.com slash newsletter to be sure you never miss a moment. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.